According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Join me once again, if you would, in the book of Exodus. We're wrapping up Exodus this afternoon. For this session, we are, uh, let me get my notes out here. We had 44, we had 45, we're moving on to 46 and 47. So day 46, this session is day 46. The tabernacle items constructed, continuing on. We've been looking at the different furniture uh, items as they were constructed in a different order from how the instructions were given just 10 chapters ago. So that's been an interesting aspect to this. Today, uh, for this session, we're going to cover chapter 37, 38, and a portion of chapter 39. And then in our next hour, we will move on. We will complete chapter 39, move on to chapter 40, conclude the book of Exodus, and also see some uh, some verses from the book of Numbers that coincide with the conclusion of the uh, of the tabernacle here at the end of the book of Exodus. So, this hour and next we'll wrap that up. God is spirit; He must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. In preparation for the study of the Word of God, let's take a moment for silent prayer, humbling our hearts under the authority of Bible doctrine. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you once again, thankful for your grace and truth, rejoicing in the privilege and blessing that it is. Father, it's just fun to be saved. Um, thank, you, thank you so much for uh, our eternal life and the blessings we have to sing your praises, to celebrate your goodness. And Father, to study your truth. Thank you for opening our eyes. Thank you for leading us in the paths of righteousness for your name's sake. And Father, we call upon your faithfulness once again as we study to show ourselves approved. Open our eyes, open our ears, soften our hearts. We thank you and praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so we're continuing on in the the construction of the ark. And we've been going item by item by item. We had five items that were created in in chapter 36. And uh, we observed those items as they were presented. And it starts with the fourth item that was instructed. So the first, second, and third items we still haven't gotten to yet. As far as when the instructions were first given to Moses, the very first item was the Ark of the Covenant. And uh, that has yet to be constructed in uh, in the description here. So moving on then in chapter 37, the uh, sixth item constructed is the Ark of the Covenant. Lo and behold, we get to that here in these first nine verses now. It was actually the very first item that was instructed way back in chapter 25. So as the instructions were given, they were given in a certain order, and that order is not being followed, okay? And that doesn't seem to be a problem. The, Lord, the Lord's not complaining. The Lord's not judging Bezalel for why is he doing this out of order. He gave the instructions. He wants these things made, and he's giving Bezalel the creativity to do them in a different order uh, according to what uh, what they have available, the material, the labor, the all the other logistics involved in manufacturing items. It just so happens that now is the time to construct the uh, the ark. So Bezalel made the ark of acacia wood. Its length was two and a half cubits, its width one and a half cubits, its height one and a half cubits. And he overlaid it with pure gold inside and out and made a gold molding for it all around. He cast four rings of gold for it on its four feet, even two rings on one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. And he made poles of acacia wood, overlaid them with gold. He put, And there's the poles that we saw Indiana Jones using and, and uh, Sala when they were carrying the ark in the, in the movie there. Harrison Ford and uh, John Reese davies All right. And he put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry it. He made a mercy seat of pure gold. <coughs> now this is key. When you're studying the typology and you're studying the nature of this, the wood overlaid with gold and then the items that are just pure gold. They're not, there's no wood in that at all. The mercy seat itself has no wood in it, okay? And when you're examining the nature of the hypostatic union of Jesus Christ, when you're studying the nature of the God-man and how it is that he became our substitute and how it is that he pleased the Father, remember the mercy seat is the place of propitiation. (coughs) The mercy seat, there's no wood in that, it's pure gold. This is the covenant, the agreement between God the Father and God the Son. And there's, there's other elements here that I think should be explored to a greater detail, then we have the time to do so here today. 
But uh, just keep these things in mind as we, as you puzzle them through, and maybe as you read some of these books. I don't, I don't know. I only know a couple of them that you guys are very fond of. Cynthia has told me. Some others have told me about some of the Tabernacle books that they just love to death. And and I'm not mocking those. I'm not criticizing those. I'm just highlighting that many of those books are ascribing a theology to the Tabernacle that the text itself does not ascribe. Okay, the text doesn't tell us why it's pure gold and no. No wood. And the text doesn't tell us why most of the ark is acacia wood overlaid with gold. All right? We have to develop the theology of that ourselves based upon what we know the Bible uses gold to represent, what the Bible uses wood to represent, and some of these other things as well. All right? So I'm just urging a note of caution in the sense of, uh, of these things. And uh, I'm not including a lot of those details in these notes because part of me is skeptical and I want to I be shown from the text. I don't just want to accept as true because Pastor Theme said so or some other pastor said so. I want to see it from the text before I can ever teach it to my flock related to the theology of these, of these things. All right, back to the mercy seat. Above the mercy seat is the cherubim. He made the two cherubim of gold. Remember, cherubim is a plural term anyway. He made the two cherubim of gold. He made them of hammered work at the two ends of the mercy seat. Again, pure gold, hammered. There's no blend. There's no overlay of, of wood or anything. Pure gold is the cherubim at uh, the two ends of the mercy seat. One cherub at one end and one cherub at the other end. He made the cherubim of one piece with the mercy seat at the two ends. So that's where they connect. And the cherubim had their wings spread upward, covering the mercy seat with their wings, with their faces toward each other. The faces of the cherubim were toward the mercy seat. And so we get that idea. And I think it's portrayed pretty well in the Indiana Jones movie where they're bowed, their heads are down, they're looking at each other, the wings are stretched out and touching in the middle, and it forms a canopy, it forms an, an arch that the mercy seat is underneath it, but it's not touching. It's, there's, a, there's a bubble in there, there's a space, a gap, for above the mercy seat and below the cherubim wings, then, and in that gap, in that space, is where the Shekinah glory is going to sit. It's where it's going to dwell, where it's going to remain. And so it just, it, it hovers there. That glory, that visible manifestation of patriological glory hovers above the mercy seat and beneath the cherubim wings. All right. And so, yes, the faces of the cherubim were toward the mercy seat. Then he made the table. All right, so let's stop there with verse 9. That's the ark. The table's the next item. So verses 1 through 9, that's the, uh, the ark. It's the sixth item created, even though it was the first item instructed. Because we started, and, and, and maybe it's no big deal. I'm just stressing this just because I observe it and I don't explain it. I don't understand it. But uh, they're out of order, okay? The seventh item constructed is the table of showbread which was actually the second item that was given in the instruction. So really we've gone four, five, six, seven, eight, and now we're backing up to one, two, okay? One, two, three, taking it in that order. So the table of acacia wood, two cubits long and a cubit wide and one and a half cubits high. Overlaid it with pure gold and made a gold molding for it all around. And so this is the table where the showbread was positioned. It, It holds the bread as they prepare the bread daily and bring it in. And uh, this was in the outer court, uh, the outer compartment of the uh, tent itself, of the holy place, in that first compartment. Made a rim for it of a handbreadth all around, and made gold molding for its rim all around. He cast four gold rings for it, put the rings on the four corners that were on its four feet, and close by the rim were the rings, the holders for the poles to carry the table made the poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold to carry the table, made the utensils which were on the table, dishes, pans, bowls, and jars with which to pour out drink offerings of pure gold. See, there was much more than just bread, okay? There's grain offerings, there's, there's drink offerings, uh, things that we'll get into more detail in the book of, Le- of Leviticus when we start to describe. In fact, some offerings require a great uh, a quantity of salt, and we don't have salt mentioned in here anywhere, but there is salt in the Levitical offerings, along with the drink, the libations that are uh, the wine offerings, and some of these details as well. So utensils there in verse 16. And everything is, of course, glorious. Everything is very costly. Everything is beautiful. Everything is uh, as God would have it 
you know, a God as glorious as our God is worthy of the most amazing uh, temple imaginable. And, and he is, this is not cheap stuff, right? And I think it's curious that, um, I think that things get misapplied in the church age, whereby uh, we have Christian churches that feel, for some reason, obligated to building these most glamorous, glorious uh, spectacle cathedrals and, and whatever else, pouring millions of dollars or whatever into, into a facility, and we don't have a New Testament authorization or even a New Testament hint that anything like that is even... Um, even desired by God, okay? And in fact, in, in some respects, the attempts that the church makes is really ripping off an idea from Israel's uniqueness. And it's, it's curious to me that uh, the church feels, in, uh, the, the Catholic church that is, feels uh, obligated to invent a liturgy that the New Testament doesn't give, to invent robes that the New Testament doesn't give, to invent a, a festal calendar with the feasts and the sacrifices that the New Testament doesn't give. And really the, the, the totality of Roman Catholic dogma is so alien from the, Old Test- or from the New Testament, it's more akin to the Old Testament than anything else. And I think that's what sparked the, the Protestant Reformation among a whole lot of other considerations. So anyway, just these are the things I think about. I'm not critical, I'm not judging, I'm not saying it's wrong to have a nice building. We've got a nice building. I'm glad we've got a nice building here. It's not a sin, but I still think we need to be balanced as far as what are we doing, okay? And we don't want to be so far in debt to a building that we can't support missions or we can't. I think there are churches that are maladjusted in some of their debt priorities. All right, that's all I'm going to say about that. Back to the tabernacle, off my soapbox. I don't have time for side trips anyway. What are we, what are we doing? The lampstand. The eighth item constructed was the third item as instructed. All right, so like I said, we had, um, we had uh, five, six, seven, eight, right? Or four, five, six, seven, eight. I'm, I'm getting confused now. Let's just go. So uh, the lampstand was the eighth item constructed here in verses 17 through 24, it was the third item that was instructed way back in chapter 25. All right. So the lampstand of pure gold made the lampstand of hammered work. Its base and its shaft, its cups, its bulbs, its flowers were one piece with it. This lampstand was, was staggering and with, with six arms coming out, three on either side uh, in, in tandems, plus the center shaft itself becomes the seventh when you, when you number the seven uh, bulbs across the top. Okay. And so, um, or cups, I guess it's called, cups and bulbs. All right, but no wood in any of this, okay? Pure gold. As far as Jesus Christ goes as a picture of light, uh, that none of that comes from his humanity. The light is purely deity that's, that's revealing, uh, revealing itself from heaven. And I think uh, most of the folks that, that find the Christological theology in the tabernacle are pretty much all in agreement with that that uh, the, the light function is purely from the deity, not from the humanity of, uh, of Christ. All right, so hammered work, its base, its shaft, its cups, its bulbs, its flowers were one piece with it. Why flowers? Okay, because God wanted flowers. Well, why not? You know, they're pretty, they look nice. And uh, if you can hammer gold and come up with something that looks like a flower, that's impressive, Okay. I mean, if I hammered gold, I'd come up with something that looks like hammered gold, and it would just be a pulverized lump of gold that I took out my carnal frustrations with a hammer. And But the idea, same thing with ice sculptures, anybody with talent, that they, they, they're carving and they're hammering and they're chiseling and, they're, and it, it looks like something recognizable when, when they're done. It's just staggering to me. Flowers on a, on a golden candlestick, how awesome is that? Six branches going out of its sides, three of its... Uh, Three branches of the lampstand from the one side of it, and three branches from the lampstand on the other side of it. And so they're in three uh, pairs, making six, plus the center column for number seven. Three cups shaped like almond blossoms, a bulb and a flower in one branch. Three cups shaped like almond blossoms, a bulb and a flower on the other branch. So for the six branches going out of the lampstand. In the lampstand, there were four cups shaped like almond blossoms, its bulbs, and its flowers. So why is it that there's three, but there's four in that middle one? All right. 
and a bulb was under the first pair of branches coming out of it, and a bulb under the second pair of branches coming out of it, and a bulb coming uh, under the third pair of branches coming out of it for the six branches coming out of the lampstand. Their bulbs and their branches were of one piece with it, and the whole of it was a single hammered work of pure gold. And this is curious to me too, so regardless of which bowl or which bulb or which aspect of it, light can be coming from a variety of different places, but it's one candlestick, all right? And I think if I'm going to bring this now into the church age, bring it into a New Testament application, I could easily adapt this in a in an allegory kind of a way, and say obviously no matter what local church you're attending, if the pastor there is teaching from the Word of God, it's the light that's going forth, but there's one candlestick, there's one source, there's one Savior that, that is the, the conduit of all that light. Maybe that's fair, maybe that's not fair, but there you have it. So he made its seven lamps. It's the first time we've seen the number seven, but that's what you have when you have the six plus the center one. He made its seven lamps with its snuffers and its trays of pure gold. Okay, the snuffer is because uh, you've got to put the fire out at some point. You're going you're gonna, to you know, darken the, stop the flame and you're going to trim the wicks and you're going to refill the oil and you're not going to do that while the flame is still gone. So you're going to have the snuffers putting the, uh, putting the light out and the trays of pure gold. Made it in all its utensils from a talent of pure gold. And that just shows the quantity, the, the weight of the, uh, of the gold. This might be useful as well when you can right-click talent and select talent right there and open up the fact book. 75 pounds. Between 58 and 75 pounds, 26.4 and 34 kilograms. And uh, you got the measurements there. And then if you want to read more, you got the uh, Lexham Bible Dictionary. Everybody has that in their Logos collection. Um, there's even a media display there on talents. So you can have some fun with that. This is in the weights and measures converter. I'm not sure which libraries include the weights and measures converter. That might be limited to certain library unlocks. But everything you want to know related to geras and beccas and pims and derricks and shekels and pounds and minas and talents, plus there's a difference between a talent and a heavy talent. Okay? People like me that have no talent, this is all just curious. All right. Anyway, so have some fun with that. I figure that's a lot of gold, okay? A talent of pure gold, 75 pounds of gold. And uh, extraordinary. The um, eighth item, that's the golden lampstand. The ninth item constructed, the altar of incense. The ninth item constructed is the altar incense. Now this one, by the way, this one was not numbered in the earlier list. This one was a separately instructed holy place item. If you were with us as we were going through chapter 25 and 26 and some of those earlier chapters, this was actually chapter 30, they were uh, all the furnishings in the temple were given, but one was left out, was this altar of incense. It was described later. It was a separately uh, informed item. Same thing happened in the courtyard, by the way. All of the furnishings of the courtyard were described except the laver was left out, and it was given later, all right? And uh, I can't explain why. I don't know why. You're asking me all these why questions. I don't know. I'm just telling you what I'm observing, that, the, uh, that this was left out, and it was added later in the description, so it was a separately instructed holy place item. It was the 12th item overall. If you want to give it a number, you can call it number 12. The 12th item overall as instructed. But it gets built in the ninth place. So he made the altar of incense of acacia wood, a cubit long and a cubit wide. So that's just a square one here, just a foot and a half by a foot and a half. Remember, a cubit's about eight, uh, half, a, half a yard. Okay, So one cubit by one cubit. And uh, so it's square and two cubits high. Its horns were one piece with it. He overlaid it with pure gold, its top and its sides all around, and its horns, and he made a gold molding for it all around. Made the two golden rings for it under its molding on its two sides. 
on opposite sides as holders for poles with which to carry it. So there's only two, one on this side, one on that side. It's a smaller piece, it's a lighter piece, it's easier to carry. This is the one I'd sign up for if it was me, because it's lighter than the heavier items related to that. Okay, Not any less dangerous though. I mean, all of these are deadly. If you touch any of these inappropriately, then God would strike you dead, or He would order you to be put to death. The holiness of these items is, is, makes them untouchable. So he made the poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold, and he made the holy anointing oil. All right, that's the last item there. So as we're looking at the uh, altar of incense, and then the tenth and eleventh items constructed or concocted, the holy anointing oil and the sacred incense. Two different items. The oil is what you smear on the priests and what you smear on the furniture and on the, uh, the, the utensils. The incense, you don't smear incense, you burn incense. Okay, So the oil is meant to be smeared, and that's for the anointing. The verb anoint is just church language, it's holy, it's, 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 it's easier, nicer to say than smeared. Okay, But that's what you're doing, you're smearing the oil. The uh, incense, though, is burned. This is what smells nice as you're burning it, and this is what gets burnt on the altar of incense. So the 10th and the 11th items, either you can call them constructed or concocted, they were uh, the holy anointing oil and the sacred incense. They were separately given recipes. They actually came in between some other descriptions that we had earlier, but separately given recipes found back in Exodus chapter 30. The, uh, the oil was in verses 22 through 33, and the incense was verses 34 through 38. And if you want to give them numbers, then they were the 14th and the 15th items uh, as instructed. All right, so he made the holy anointing oil and the pure fragrant incense of spices the work of a perfumer. And remember, Bezalel was given skill to do all of this, but I don't believe he did it all himself personally. I believe he taught and instructed and delegated, supervised, inspected as other people were coming along and serving. And so, um, you know, the, the perfumer was doing this and getting it ready to go, and Bezalel was overseeing it and, and inspecting it. Of course, he had the skill set to do it himself if he needed to, but he's just following what, uh, what this perfumer was doing and dealing with that. All right, which gets us to chapter 38. It says the tabernacle completed. Not so fast. <laughs> All right, um, that's technically in chapter 40. But we can see, well, we'll see as we go through these verses here. Sometimes pericope headings that are given by English Bible publishers, we just kind of say, eh, well, technically, okay, I guess. So what are the last two chapters about? Okay, 39 and 40. The twelfth item constructed was the ninth item instructed. The twelfth item constructed is the brazen altar. This is the big one. This is the one out front. This is the one that, that the, the burnt offerings were given, the, the, the sin offerings, trespass offerings, peace offerings. This is the, the huge brazen altar is the primary sacrificial altar of, of Israel's temple. The ninth item that was instructed in Exodus 27 is now the twelfth item constructed. The altar of burnt offering on acacia wood, five cubits long. Five cubits long. Okay? Each cubit being a foot and a half. And five cubits wide, square, and three cubits high. He made its horns on its four corners, its horns being of one piece with it. And he overlaid it with, not gold, overlaid it with bronze. Okay? And remember, bronze is the, is the metal that speaks of judgment. Bronze is the metal that speaks... Uh, and he, if the sky is made bronze, that means he's turning off the rain and judging the people with drought. Or uh, if Jesus has his feet uh, and it's burnished bronze, the appearance of his feet, that means he's, he's going to come stomp. He's, he's got some stomping judgment on the way. And anything with bronze represents judgment so frequently throughout the, throughout the Bible. So it's, uh, it's acacia wood, but it's overlaid with bronze. And he made all the utensils of the altar, the pails, the shovels, the basins, the flesh hooks and the fire pans. He made all of its utensils of bronze. And if you think about it, it's like a big barbecue grill, really. You know, um, you got to have your utensils. You got to have your forks. You got to, you know, an animal sacrifice on the altar is like dinner on the grill. Okay, you got to, and you can't just leave it there. You got to pull it off. The ashes have to be shoveled out. 
there's, uh, there's a lot of maintenance on uh, the grill itself. So, uh, he made for the altar a grating of bronze network beneath, under its ledge, reaching halfway up. And so you have a layer there whereby the, you know, drippings can drip and, and whatever else is happening, plus the flames coming from underneath. So that's halfway up. How many, how many cubits high was it? Three cubits high. All right, so halfway up. Anyway, this stuff makes my head spin cast four rings on the four ends of the bronze grating because you need more carriers for this. It's heavier. can't just do it with two rings. And uh, made the poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with bronze as well. So again, bronze everywhere you're looking at here on this brazen altar. He inserted the poles into the rings on the sides of the altar with which to carry it. He made it hollow with planks. Now keep in mind, hollow with planks you're not carrying it with the fire going. You're not carrying it with the wood laid on there. You're, you know, you're going to shovel out all the ashes and you're going to remove the, the, the meat, the sacrifice. You're going you're to clean it off and scrub it down and then you're going to carry it. And uh, the description there. So he made it hollow with planks. It's the last description on that altar. And again... Um, I think I showed, we got some pictures on this. Again, you can right-click it. This is the altar. This is the bronze altar, the temple altar. Let's just take that one. And again, open up the fact book. You're really going to like the fact book. And uh, you got your key article there. You got pictures. And if that's not enough pictures, you can find some more by searching all your media. But some of these pictures, especially if you're going to contrast the, uh, the original tabernacle altar with the future temple altar and then the future millennial temple altar, really gets huge. Yeah, that's not something portable. That's not something you're going to carry around. That's something that's going to get installed and, and left there till Nebuchadnezzar destroys it. Anyway, have some fun with that. Search your... Uh, Search your media library for bronze altar, and uh, you'll start to find some of these. A few of these are interesting, like this one. This is good for comparison, because there were different altars given in Genesis and given in another passage of the Old Testament that would talk about unworked stones, or just a single stone, or... Um, this movable one that's bronze-covered wood, then the tiered stone, the solid bronze. That's kind of a neat picture there. In fact, they got all the tabernacle furnishings here, don't they? There's the table of showbread. Yeah, so have some fun with this one. Just spend some time. Explore your Logos installation. Find these different ones. This is a nice one that has a cutaway so that you can see the Holy of Holies and then the Holy Place, where the different furniture furnishings are. Table goes to the north, lampstand goes to the south. Why? Because God said so, that's why. The altar of incense is right up against the veil. Yeah, so have some fun with that. All right. And depending on what resources you have available, it's not going to try to point you to something you don't have. Usually. Sometimes they throw some sales pitches in there. So that's the altar, verses 1 through 7. Starting in verse 8, we have the uh, laver. In fact, that is verse 8, is the laver. The 13th item constructed, the bronze laver, was a separately instructed courtyard item. It was not in the original description of the courtyard, but it was given later. A separately instructed courtyard item. And it's the 13th item overall as instructed. 13th as instructed, 13th as constructed. How about that? We finally intersected with uh, the numbering on these things. And lucky 13 is the laver. The laver of bronze with its base of bronze from the mirrors of the serving women who served at the doorway of the tent of meeting. Wow. Okay, so I guess they don't need the mirrors anymore. Let's just make a laver out of it. And uh, interesting. Don't know why he did that, but he decided to do that. 
Then he makes the court. Remember what the laver is? The laver is the place of cleansing. It's the place for hand washing and foot washing. Okay? And it's not for the full body bath. It's not for the bathing and the anointing of a priest. It's not for their ordination when, they're, when they become priests. It's, it's, not, it's only for the periodic uh, daily cleansing that's required. It's like our confession of sin. It's First John 1, 9. It's the periodic confession uh, cleansing that's needed before they go into the holy place. They don't dare go into the holy place without first washing hands and feet at the, uh, at the laver. Then they can go in. Alright? It's like, don't you dare sit here in carnality before Bible class starts. You've got a, a prayer to start, you can get in fellowship, and you're not going to sit here in carnality through the, the whole hour of teaching. You're going to be in fellowship before you enter into the holy place. Alright, then we have the 14th item constructed. The 10th item as instructed is the uh, tabernacle court, verses 9 through 20. And this court is interesting because there's not a lot there other than the, the brazen altar and the laver, but there are the dimensions that are given for the area around the tent itself, the dimensions that are given for the, the different walls of the tabernacle, the external courtyard walls. And we also understand that it's inside there that the bulk of these sacrifices were made, and so there was a lot of... Um, activity that happened there because what we're going to learn in Leviticus is we're going to learn that following many of these sacrifices was time to eat and that the offerers were then going to have a fellowship meal with the priests that they were working with to bring the offering before the Lord. And so this courtyard area becomes designated for, um, we might say dinner on the grounds, if you will. It becomes designated for the people to meet with the priests, to meet with the Levites, to eat with them, to drink with them, to discuss Scripture, to be taught, to be instructed. A lot of things would be taking place inside or in that, in that courtyard uh, on, on a regular basis. Not in the tent, though. In the tent, only the priests are going in there, but in the courtyard. So he made the court. For the south side, the hangings of the court were fine twisted linen, 100 cubits, 20 uh, pillars and their 20 sockets made of bronze. The hooks of the pillars and their bands were of silver. North side, 100 cubits, their 20 pillars and their 20 sockets were bronze. The hooks of the pillars and their bands were silver. The west side, there were hangings of 50 cubits. So it's 100 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, and it's a rectangle. And their ten sockets, hooks of the pillars, and bands were silver. For the east side, 50 cubits. Hangings for the one side of the gate. Now it's on the east side is where the gate is located. Okay, because you're coming in from the east. The whole east side is 50 cubits, but you've got a gate in the middle of that, so you've got hangings on either side. Hangings for the one side of the gate were 15 cubits, the three pillars and their three sockets. So, and so for the other side, on both sides of the gate of the court, were hangings of 15 cubits, with their uh, three pillars and their three sockets. So all the hangings of the court all around were a fine twisted linen. Sockets for the pillars were of bronze. The hooks of the pillars and their bands of silver. The overlaying of their tops of silver. And all the pillars of the court were furnished with silver bands. Okay? Imagine what this looks like. And I don't know if somebody's built a scale model of this like they have of the ark or they have. It'd be fun to walk through and fun to see. Robert, do you know of one? Pennsylvania. Okay, a oh, good deal. All right. Someday I'll go see that. In fact, I'm planning my January vacation now for, uh, but Pennsylvania in January, I'm not seeing that. I'm, I'm planning Florida for. <laughs> All right. Yeah, don't be shocked if I survive this through the Bible year that. We, we wrap it up on January 1st of 2023 and then I've got a substitute lined up for Wednesday night for uh, <laughs> my disappearance very quickly. All right, we're still on the east side. We're still dealing with the entrance of the, of the courtyard itself and here it's called a gate. The screen of the gate of the court was a work of the weaver, blue and purple and scarlet material and fine twisted linen and the length was 20 cubits and the height was 5 cubits corresponding to the hangings of the court. All right, so if you're, if you're doing the math and you're adding up the 50 cubits there, then you've got 15 and 15, that makes 30, and that middle, the, that middle gap that the screen needs to cover is the, the 20 cubits. And so altogether, you're, you're getting 50 cubits there. 
I may not know construction, but I can add. 15, 15, and 20. All right. Corresponding to the hangings of the court. The four pillars and their four sockets were of bronze. The hooks were of silver. The overlaying of their tops and their bands were of silver. And the pegs of the tabernacle of the court all around were of bronze. Okay, The pegs, these are like stakes, like tent stakes. You don't want your tabernacle blowing away in the wind. So you've got, you, you stake it down with these pegs. Okay, Nobody named Peg or Peggy that we can tease today related to pounding Peggy into the ground. All right, pegs of the tabernacle. Then we have a summary on the cost. All right, so the 14th item constructed was the 10th item as instructed. And again, maybe I'm making a big deal out of this and it's just get over it, who cares. Um, the, the, the order that they were described in is not the order it was built in. All right, And that to me is, is um, useful, even though God is precise, even though God has expectations, he has demands, he's giving. Uh, Bezalel does not have freedom to change the recipe, but within the parameters he's given, he has the flexibility to reorder his work and to schedule the, the different assignments in a different way. And, and God's given him that, that uh, discretion, saying. All right. Then we have the payment for this. And what, what does a tabernacle like this cost? <laughs> what we end up with is a census tax of silver that's tabulated, along with the volitional gifts of gold and bronze. We've actually had a tandem of two different operations happening here. One is grace and one is law. In the grace giving, it's as your heart moves and you're donating gold, silver, bronze. You're donating purple and, and, and blue and scarlet linen. You're donating goat's hair and you're don- donating the material support for the tabernacle. But then other people, uh, beyond the grace gifts that are being given, is also a tax, a half-shekel tax for every adult. And uh, described here, we, we studied that last week when the instructions were given. Now we're seeing some of the totals that are given here. All right, so this is the number of the things for the tabernacle, the tabernacle of the testimony, as they were numbered according to the command of Moses for the service of the Levites by the hand of Ithamar, the son of Aaron, the priest. His youngest son, the fourth son, is the one that he assigns the uh, the treasurer duties to. He's the one that's tabulating the gifts that are given. He's the one that is is keeping all the numbers, keeping the receipts, tracking the expenses, and and all the rest is assigned to Ithamar. As it's tabulated. We also have some different phrases that is used here. Remember this, um, it's called the tabernacle very frequently. It's, it's coming from the sense of dwelling. It's a mishkan, it's a place of dwelling. Uh, but it's also called a holy place, which comes from the, the adjective of kadosh, of, 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 uh, of holy. And so sometimes it's called a mikdash, sometimes it's called a mishkan, sometimes it's called a tent, oh hell, okay? First beginning Hebrew students, the, the, the first word they love is ohel because Hebrew is hard to learn and they say ohel a lot, but that's the word for tent. And so we learn about tents and we learn about the, um, the, the tent of meeting. There's, there's different labels for it. The sanctuary, the holy place, the tabernacle. It's all referring to this structure that we're dealing with, with the courtyard, the altar, the laver, the tent. The Holy of Holies inside with the Ark of the Covenant. That's the tabernacle. All right, so Ithamar is the one that's tasked with, uh, with tracking the funds, the uh, receipts and the expenses. Then we have um, Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, made all that the Lord had commanded Moses. He was the general contractor. Aholiab was his chief foreman. With him was Aholiab, the son of Asamach of the tribe of Dan, an engraver and a skillful workman, and a weaver in blue and purple and scarlet material and fine linen. And all the gold that was used for the work and all the work of the sanctuary, even the gold of the wave offering, was 29 talents and change. Not quite 30 talents, okay? 29 talents and 730 shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. And, And that's just the gold. That is the weight of the gold. And so many of the furnishings that were overlaid with gold and so many of the poles and so many of the... Uh, that's just the gold that went into it. Remember, a, a, a talent is like 75 pounds of gold. And we got nearly 30 of those. That's an extraordinary amount of gold. Okay, Just giving it a dollar value today is, is off the charts. 
I think gold's like over $1,800 an ounce now. And imagine uh, 75 times 30, uh, you know, 75 pounds times 30, that's a lot of gold. Then the silver of those of the congregation who were numbered was 100 talents and 1775 shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. Now this is where some of the numbers are in question and we have to do some text criticism work and we have to look at this. How much of this is original to this manuscript and how much of this was borrowed from different manuscripts where the numbers were adjusted? Okay, We talked about that when we talked about the number thousand. The number thousand might not be the number thousand. The, the LF might be chief instead of a number, in which case we have to adjust these numbers. So, uh, the congregation who were numbered. Now this is the mandatory temple tax. This is not the voluntary. This is not the what do you want to give as the Lord leads your heart. This is the have to. This is every male, uh, 20 years and up, is paying this half shekel. That's his, that's his buy-in to this, to support the operating expenses of this tabernacle. And so, um, again, 100 talents of silver and 1,775 shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. A becca ahead... That is half a shekel, because a becca is half a shekel. Uh, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, for each one who passed over to those who were numbered from 20 years old and upward for 603,550 men. All right, that's a lot of men. And this is the large number that we talked about earlier with respect to the Exodus. When the number was given back in, in, uh, in Exodus chapter 12 and verse 37. There was about 600,000 men on foot aside from the, the TAF, the non-combatants. Okay? 100 talents of silver were for the casting of the sockets of the sanctuary and the sockets of the veil. 100 sockets for the 100 talents. A talent for a socket. Of the 1775 shekels, he made hooks for the pillars and overlaid the tops and made bands for them. The bronze of the wave offering was 70 talents and 2,400 shekels. With it he made the sockets to the doorway of the tent of meeting and the bronze altar and the bronze grating and all the utensils of the altar and the sockets of the court all around and the sockets of the gate of the court and all the pegs of the tabernacle and all the pegs of the court all around. All right, so that gets us to the end of chapter 38. So the silver, so this is the tax. It was instructed back in chapter 30. It's executed here in chapter 38. The gold and the bronze were not a part of the mandatory tax, but a part of the volitional grace giving. The silver was a part of the tax. The half-shuckle requirement for the males that were enumerated. Again, the traditional number, the big number, the number that's in all the modern Bibles, the, the number that's been in the King James Bible. It's the number that's in the Masoretic text, okay, which is why it's in the King James Bible, is 600,000. But recall, when they left Egypt... The sons of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Sukkoth, about 600 elef, men on foot, aside from the taf, aside from the non-combatants. The noun taf refers to folks that don't fight. Okay, Taf is a word, and so it includes children, it includes women, and it includes uh, older men, the elderly. Okay, So the fighting age men, the military age fighting men, are the ones that are numbered here in the 600 elef, men on foot, in, basically infantry soldiers, aside from the TAF. And uh, the question is, how do we handle this LF? Do we take it as the number thousand, or do we take it as the noun for chief? Do we understand that all of the armies of Israel were, fell under 600 commanders, 600 chiefs, and that the, the, the militia, volunteer infantry that worked for those chiefs were, were under those chiefs' leadership? Okay, And we're going to get more on this. I keep praying that Titus will get his book finished, but if not, I have an early draft and I have some, some handwritten notes when he was here and teaching a, uh, an archaeology conference. Okay, And so the understanding of chief instead of thousand is, is much more preferable for a lot of reasons, and I'm going to get into that. It's really going to be uh, featured in the, uh, the book of Numbers when we get to the census in Numbers chapter 1 and the census. There's two censuses in the book of Numbers, one early, one late. So stay tuned for that. 
All right, remember the LF numbers may not actually be thousands, and so we have to understand our numbers differently in each context. We get now to chapter 39. I hope this is not distressing to anybody. You know, I don't want you to think that your Bible is not reliable. Your Bible is very reliable. Our Bibles are God-breathed and inspired in the original autographs. Okay? Now the process of copying manuscripts over the centuries leads to variants. It leads to miscopied manuscripts. It, requi- it leads to uh, human error that comes into the copies, not into the autographs. The God-breathed and inspired scripture applies to the autographs. The very first scrolls written by the very first human co-authors of God's word. Does that, does that make sense? I hope we're all clear on that. And if there are skeptics that want to view the whole um, practice of text criticism as if it uh, makes the case for the Bible weaker, they have it backwards. Text criticism makes the case for the reliability of the Bible stronger because we have the thousands of variants that we have. We have every variant that's known by every, every scroll that's known. And on the basis of all those variants, we have like a 99.99% certainty related to the reconstruction of the autographs, which is what we do. The, the whole point in text criticism is to reconstruct the autograph as best we can with our, with our study on these matters. So even though we don't possess even one of 66 autographs, none of them are, are preserved, none of them are, are existent today. You know, the scroll that was the original Genesis scroll is long gone. They, they were all copied for years and years and years. That's how God designed it. All right. So uh, we get to chapter 39 and we have now garments. The 15th and final preparations completed were the garments for Aaron and his sons. This was the 11th item that was uh, instructed back in Exodus 28. And so they're going to get dressed. They're going to be um, prepared for service. Blue and purple and scarlet material made finely woven garments for ministering in the holy place as well as the holy garments which were for Aaron just as the Lord had commanded Moses. So it's clear when they're dressed for duty, when they're on duty, when they're in these robes, uh, they are serving. And this is how God designed the priesthood. Not the church. You know, the Roman church invented their robes and their colors and all of that. But the New Testament doesn't tell us anything about pastors and suits and ties or anything like that. All right. We're just slaves to our... Uh, traditions and practices and culture as it's come down to us. He made the ephod of gold. By the way, do you know what an ephod is? We've used ephod so many times. It's like a, I don't want to call it a bib, but it's a, it's a, uh, let me pull up the fact book here. High priest ephod. So it's, it's like a, a vest. It goes over the head and shoulders, but it's open on the, on the sides so you can kind of think of it as a vest or a bib. And uh, there you go. So it's on top of the robes. He's wearing robes, and then the ephod goes over top. And it's sewn at the shoulders, and he's got um, the, the names of the tribes are on the shoulders. Then he's got the breast piece in the center with all those stones in it. And he's got a folded pocket inside there where he can stash the, uh, the urim and the thummim, get hidden inside there. So anyway, that's an ephod. Think of it as a, as a vest. All right, blue and purple and scarlet material. What, what are those colors about? We keep seeing those colors too. What does blue represent? What does scarlet represent? What does purple represent? Well, these texts don't tell us. So I'm not telling you in the notes. <laughs> but no, people do... They study this, they, they ascribe purple as royalty and, and blue as purity and red as blood, of course, for judgment and different things. And based on that, they, uh, they, they create a great theology of, of this uh, ephod. They hammered out gold sheets and cut them into threads to be woven with the blue and the purple and the scarlet material. That's kind of cool. How expensive is that thread? And how finely do you have to pound it to get it thin enough and to... to, to to make thread out of, out of pure gold and then to weave it into the material. That seems uh, the work of a skillful workman, I'd say. Okay. And they made attaching shoulder pieces for the ephod. This is what links the front piece and the back piece together. And um, 
attached at its two upper ends. The skillfully woven band which was on it was like the, its workmanship of the same material of gold and blue and purple and scarlet material and fine twisted linen just as the Lord commanded Moses. They made the onyx stones. Those are the ones on the shoulders that have the names carved into them. Six tribes on one and six tribes on the other. Stones of onyx. Set in gold filigree settings. They were engraved like the engravings of a signet according to the names of the sons of Israel. So when the high priest walks into the most holy place on the Day of Atonement, he's representing all 12 tribes. He, he's, he's got them on his shoulder. He's walking in with them, representing them before the Lord for their Day of Atonement. The names of the sons of Israel. And he placed them on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as memorial stones for the sons of Israel, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Not because God's forgetful, but the memorial stone, it's, it's, it's written and it's observable and it makes God mindful of each of those tribes. Made the breast piece, the work of a skillful workman, like the workmanship of the ephod of gold and blue and purple and scarlet material and fine twisted linen. It was square. They made the breast piece folded double. This is what causes that pocket then because it's folded double. A span long and a span wide and folded double. Okay, A span is like half a cubit. Long and a span wide and folded double. And they mounted four rows of stones on it. And then they're all listed here. And I encourage you, um, not only this text, but also uh, Ezekiel 26. And you're going to see the stones that were on the dragon in, uh, in uh, the, the match with the high priest stones here. Okay? Which is, leads a lot of folks to understand that Satan had a priestly role in the, uh, in the angelic earth. So ruby, topaz, and emerald, that's the first row. Uh, turquoise, sapphire, diamond is the second row. Uh, jacinth, agate, and amethyst is the third row. Uh, beryl, onyx, and jasper is the fourth row. So four rows of three, 12 stones all together. Again, the dollar value on this, I can't even imagine. Set in gold filigree settings when they were mounted. And the stones were corresponding to the names of the sons of Israel, 12 according to their names, engraved with the engravings of a signet, each with its name for the 12 tribes. Now it doesn't tell us exactly, you know, that the first tribe, Reuben, was the first stone, or the second, we don't know that kind of detail. But I think we can speculate if we want. Feel free, you have permission to speculate all you want related to these 12 stones. Uh, they will be named when we get to the heavenly Jerusalem, and we're going to have foundation stones there. We're going to have the tribes that are mentioned there, as well as the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So that's going to be coming up in the future. All right. Then on the breastpiece, chains like cords of twisted cordage worked in poor gold. What, is it, what does he need the chains for? Isn't this thing heavy enough? And how heavy was this thing, by the way? When Aaron walks around, does, you know, does he get tired by the end of the day? These are the questions I want to know. So, um, two rings. So we have chains, we have uh, like cords, twisted cordage work in pure gold, two gold filigree settings, two gold rings, put the two rings on the two ends of the breast piece, put the two gold cords in the two rings at the ends of the breast piece. So I mean, yeah, you're going to tie together your front side and your back side, why not use chains of gold to do it? Made two gold rings, placed them on the two ends of the breast piece, on the inner edge that was next to the ephod, made two gold rings and placed them on the bottom of the two shoulder pieces of the ephod, on the front of it, close to the place where it was joined above the woven band of the ephod. Oh yeah, yeah, so this is actually, the, these chains are for connecting that, that center breast piece to the front of the, uh, of the ephod. All right. So bound the breast piece by its rings to the rings of the ephod with a blue cord so that they would be of the woven band of the ephod and that the breast piece would not come loose from the ephod just as the Lord had commanded Moses. I mean, how embarrassing would that be when, you're, when your uh, breast piece comes loose and, uh, as you're standing before the Lord? Then the robe and the ephod, woven work all blue. The opening of the robe was at the top in the center, the opening of a coat of mail, with a binding all around its opening so that it would not be torn. They made pomegranates of blue and purple and scarlet material and twisted linen on the hem of the robe. And usually this is thought of as kind of a, a footer at the bottom of the robe, that it runs all the way around the, the, the uh, perimeter of the, of the garment as a hem. 
made to look like pomegranates. And bells of pure gold. Put the bells between the pomegranates all around the hem of the robe. Why does he have bells? I mean, he jingle, jangle, jingles while he's walking in the, in the, in the temple, right? What, what's the point of those bells? We're, we're going to see some things about that. In some respects, there's different legends and traditions about as long as they heard the bells, they knew that he was still alive, right? That he hadn't been struck dead, so I guess that's a clue. Uh, but there's other reasons for the bells. It's, it's curious to me how much of Israel's worship was so um, tactile. It was, so, it was all about what could be seen, what could be smelled, what could be tasted, what could be felt, what could be heard. And so it's like all of the senses are engaged in this priesthood where everything in the Old Testament is so um, tactile, it's so, it's so tangible, it's, it's functioning in shadows trying to point to a reality. And I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm glad to function in the reality. I'm glad that we, we're church-age believers that, that operate in the substance Rather than, you know, jingle jangle standing up here with bells on all day. How, how, uh, you know, that'd be awkward. It would interfere with our YouTube stream. I mean, all the, the, the jangling bells would come across. All right. So, bells of pure gold, put the bells between the pomegranates all around the hem of the robe. So we're gonna, we're gonna alternate back and forth. Alternating a bell and a pomegranate, bell and a pomegranate, all the way around the hem of the robe for the service, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. All right, well, that sounds cool. And then they made tunics, finely woven linen for Aaron and his sons, the turban of fine linen, decorated caps of fine linen, and uh, the linen breeches of fine twisted linen. Okay, so they did wear breeches underneath the robes. Don't start any rumors there. All right. The sash of fine twisted linen, blue and purple and scarlet material, the work of the weaver, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. So, so what is the pattern of this? How does this work? How do you weave together blue and purple and scarlet? What's the, is it, is it, in, is it like a Scottish, you know, plaid, tartan of some type? What, what is the, what, what was the, we don't know. We just have the description here and, you know, whatever your imagination goes with, uh, I guess you can visualize it in your mind's eye. However, Bezalel and Holiab and these guys envisioned it. They said, oh, I know what to do with that. Blue and purple and gold and scarlet. And yeah, yeah, I know what I'm going to do. And he starts weaving the stuff together. I'm sure it was gorgeous. All right. So uh, verses 1 through 31, these are the garments. The 15th and final preparations completed. It was the 11th item as instructed. It was the uh, 15th and final item as uh, completed. What is missing from this chapter? In fact, nowhere in this, uh, from, the, from the golden calf on, do we have a reference to the Urim and the Thummim. The Urim and the Thummim are missing from this description. And so there's a puzzle. Urim and Thummim were described, they were commanded. Uh, we know that they were instructed to be made. We were told, uh, he was told to make them in Exodus 28.30. You shall put the breastpiece of judgment. In the breastpiece of judgment is where you stash the Urim and the Thummim. And they shall be over Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. Okay, So that's where it goes. But we don't have a description of them being manufactured. Why not? Don't know. Missing from the description. Also, it was called a turban when it was first instructed back in Exodus 28. But when it's manufactured in 3930, it's actually called a crown, a holy crown. They made the plate of the holy crown of pure gold and inscribed it like the engravings of a signet, holy to the Lord. So it was called a turban there. It's called a crown here. Um, Why is it called something different than what it was described as earlier? I don't know. It is a turban, but it's also a crown. A turban is a priest crown, maybe, whatever the case may be. It was not a king's crown. That's, that's clear. Okay? They don't even have a king until Solomon, until uh, Saul, David, and Solomon. But um, it is called a crown, the, the turban of the high priest. Okay? All right, well, that gets us through verse 31. We'll do the rest of this next hour when we get into day 47. I'll just open it there.
All right, so that's going to finish uh, Exodus 39, and then basically taking us from verses 32 and following, and then we're going to get into Exodus 40, and then we've got Numbers chapter 9, some other details to kind of tie together the completion of the tabernacle. All right, so we're going to take a 20-minute break, we're going to come back at 3.30, and we'll, uh, we'll have our final class for the day. Father, thank you for this class, thank you for uh, keeping us awake after uh, the lunch break and going through all these details on each of these furnishings and, and items. We just thank you and praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.